BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And you're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello, you are listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. This is a special episode, um, two parts on Sean, Sir Sean Connery, uh, the first movie James Bond. Uh, Usually we spend our episodes going through the alphabet, looking at the creators behind the film, and it's at this point that we reach C for Connery, Sean Connery. Mm. And perhaps one of the most important episodes we'll be doing, I guess, guys? Well, definitely. Well, not only is is he... I I can't remember if he's your favourite Bond. Not only is he my favourite Bond, but he's also the first Bond. So he's one of the most important people that's ever been in the Bond series except I mean, Barry Nelson of course yes yeah. I mean whether whether he's your Bond or not without him there is no Bond so no that is exactly right from the yes, from yeah. what I've from all the research I've done it's clear that his casting in that in Doctor No is so important to the, mm-hmm. the success of the series there would be no Bond without Sean Connery and he is the actor possibly who's played James Bond with the biggest legacy as well because his career outside of Bond was just so colossal. He's a cultural icon in a way that none of the other Bond's actors have ever achieved, I think. Yeah, yes. yeah definitely. Yes, I think that's true. So without further ado, we'll dive straight into it. And this episode will be slightly different to our other episodes, as I've, as I've mentioned. We'll only be talking about Sir Sean Connery. We will be talking about his James Bond films, but remember... Each of those films that he made will also get their own episode. So Doctor No, From Russia With Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, You Only Live Twice, Diamonds Are Forever and Never Say Never Again. They will get their own episodes. So if we feel if it feels like we're skirting over those films, it's because they'll have their own episodes. And maybe at the point that you listen to this, those episodes might exist. At the moment, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> so let's begin at the beginning, shall we? Yeah, might as well. <laughs> 
So, so this is interesting. First fun fact, Sean Connery's name isn't Sean Connery. It's Thomas Connery. And Thomas Connery was born on the 25th of August, 1930, to father Joe Connery and his mother Effie. Uh, he's actually named after his paternal grandfather. And the family lived at a place called 176 Fountain Bridge in Edinburgh, which is uh, at the time was a tenement on the southwest slopes of Edinburgh, home of the city's factories and manufacturing plants. So it sort of conjures up quite a poor upbringing, at least, you know, relatively speaking to a lot of people. And he'll, he talks about that a lot, you know, coming from a slightly deprived background. His family rented two rooms in this tenement. Uh, that's all that that was their house. And actually that his mother and father lived there for many years. Uh, they rented two rooms. And when Tom, uh, Tommy was born, he slept in the bottom drawer of the wardrobe in his parents' bedroom and only later moved onto a sofa bed in the kitchen stroke living room. So you can sort of get a sense of the, his sort of humble uh, beginnings. His father, Joe, was an unskilled labourer. And obviously at that time, 1930, you know, it was the Depression. Times were tough. Um, and so football, uh, sorry, work was hard to find. But Thomas, Tommy, or, or Tam, as he was known, he was football mad. And that was his sort of big passion as uh, from an early age. He had a brother called Neil, who was born in 1938. And from quite an early age, Tommy got a job as um, doing a milk round at a place called St Cuthbert's Dairy Stables, just because he loved the horses. Uh, He also had a a paper round and worked at the local butchers. And the area that he was born in is totally changed now. The the tenement's been bulldozed. It's been completely redeveloped. And actually, he he visited uh, where, where he was born in 2010, to unveil a plaque dedicated to, you know, like a blue plaque. Tom mm-hmm. Sean Connery was born here, and he said he just felt completely lost at the time. He just changed out of recognition. So, apologies to anyone from Edinburgh. I, I've never been there, but um, yeah, that's just what what I learned about his uh, where he was born and where he grew up. So that that the milk round that you talked about, he was actually nine. He was, he was nine years old when he took his first job. Because he because they were from that poor background, he and he recognised and seen that. The family were struggling, so he went out off off of his own back and on the back of the love of horses. That's what he sought. He sought to work, but nine—that's incredible, isn't it? Just unheard of. We can't imagine it now, can you? No, absolutely. Just absolutely crazy. And he he does talk about it, like you said. He said, "My background was harsh. We were poor. I never knew how poor till years after. I was up at dawn, then through a milk round before school. So those are long days for." for a nine-year-old during world war ii uh, he he was 13 dropped out of school to support his family so that was had to be done his dad at the time was injured so he couldn't work so that that left uh tommy as he was known then as the sole provider and he said life was completely governed by economics you didn't leave a light on when you didn't actually need it because it cost money you couldn't have a bath when you felt like it there was the price of a plunge in the public baths to think of i wanted to do something with my life i wanted to have pride in it and feel the joy there was far too little joy about so with the war being on he went and uh, got a job as a milk round again so he'd worked his way up and um in charge of the horses and the carts not actually that great at the job as uh, one of his colleagues from the time uh, remembers uh, and there's a story where he had an accident with the delivery cart. So the bridle had come off the horse so that the the cart and the horse weren't actually connected. 
and rather than sort of cobbling something together something together or making sure the horse stuck around he just abandoned the cart and walked back to the store so he just left the cart the cart and the horse and obviously they were all appalled that he just left the full cart and that horse was on his own he said Connery stood there before him helpless hands in pockets mouth agape <laughs> just just it wasn't, his, it wasn't his calling <laughs> clearly not and that's what the guy the guy actually says that he says um it's as just as well he made it as an actor he'd not have made it as a milkman yeah so the reason he left school he just he just wrote off his whole education he said it was a wipeout I had no qualifications at all for a job and unemployment had always been very high in Scotland so you take what you get well he took a pretty big leap out of kind of menial tasks and various little jobs in 1946 when at the age of 16 he joined the Royal Navy you hear this quite a lot in when you talk about kind of old actors or, or, or old people in history that they often do join the military in some shape or another and uh, he, he joined the uh, Portsmouth at the Naval Gunnery School in the anti-aircraft crew. Uh, originally he signed up for 12 years service, uh, seven as a sailor five in the Naval Reserve. I didn't know you could sign up for a certain specific number of years for these things. So clearly at the time he had a it was planning to go go all in and, and, and you know really progress his career in in the navy didn't really happen that way one of the things that crops up quite a lot when i when, I, when i've been researching connery in the navy is these tattoos he <laughs> yeah, acquired yeah. two tattoos I, I, anybody else it probably wouldn't get noticed but it seems like a big deal with uh, connery um one tattoo is a tribute to his parents and reads mum and dad and the other says scotland forever and apparently the tattoos are visible in more than one bond movie yeah. Well, I haven't seen these. Yeah, they're on his arms. Well, you can actually see them. Mm. I mean, they're covered up with makeup, them. but um, I think they, yeah. in some in some of them, it's, it's not been a very good job. Yeah, I've never spotted them, or never never even thought to look at them. But I would say I'm going to rewatch them to find them, but I won't. I'll just uh, keep it in mind next time we're reviewing one. Yeah. But anyway, his naval career was cut short at, at the age of 19 when uh, on medical grounds because of a duodenal ulcer and. Um, it was at the time it was a condition that affected a lot of uh, men because people didn't know what caused it really it was n- nowadays you kind of you know it's there's there's lots of different causes of duodenal ulcers and there's like stress and there's bacteria and all these different things but at the time they just assumed it was always stress and when you're in the navy you can't have somebody stressed because it's too dangerous so yeah he 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 left the navy after quite a, a short period there and came back home uh, but apparently that was quite um it was a good thing really because even though he was he left because of the ulcer and health reasons it wasn't really for him and he he said um of being in the navy i don't like anyone telling me what to do put it another way i don't so much mind being told what to do provided i have respect for the person who's telling me but there is nothing more boring more annoying more maddening than being told to do something by someone who is incompetent so this seemed like a theme of his naval time. He didn't really... Um, I read a few accounts where he'd have like his commanding officer, then they'd have a commanding officer, then they'd have a commanding officer. And it just seemed like he thought that they were all kind of inept and he didn't like taking orders from that, that, that whole hierarchy of people, which fits quite cleanly in with what I found in the research outside of the Navy as well when it, you know... He doesn't like the bureaucracy, does he? 
Yeah, he he wants to. He, he's he's quite a, you know, he's in control. He knows what he wants. Doesn't Single want those people yeah. what to do. So, he came back and he returned to being a, a co-op. Uh, co-op. He returned to being a milkman at the co-op. I think that was that was who um, hired him before, wasn't it? Yes, as it was. A, yeah, as a milkman. I had to check because uh, I couldn't find any reference to what the co-op was in his all these talks, and eventually I, I worked it out. It could, but it could have been anything, couldn't it? It could be funerals or anything like that. So he, he worked. He came back as a milkman for the co-op, but he wasn't his only job. He did lots of jobs. He worked as a lorry driver. Uh, he worked as a lifeguard uh, at Portobello Swing Baths. He was a labourer, and he also worked as a uh, an artist model at Edinburgh College of Art and a coffin polisher. Yeah, that's so, the one that always comes up, isn't it? The coffin polisher. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, it's quite an interesting one, really, and I'll I'll tell you why in a minute. But um, the so that lasted about three years. He he kind of went in and out of jobs for about three years. No real career or anything like that. The modelling gig he had, he earned fifteen shillings an hour. And uh, there's there's a guy, one of the artists there, Richard DeMarco, apparently at the time said uh, who painted him a few times, described him as very straight, slightly shy. Too, too beautiful for words, a virtual Adonis. So seemed like uh, Richard enjoyed his art classes. So there was uh, apparently the, there was contact, uh, no contact between painters and models allowed at these art classes. But Connery was quite popular with the girl students there who would recall things like jet black hair and dark eyebrows and, his, and a spectacular body. So, yeah, that was another one of his little jobs he did. And then in 1951, um, he got a quite a nice treat, really, because the military came to his aid. And because he was a disabled ex-serviceman, he was eligible for them to pay for him to do a scholarship to enable him to learn a trade after leaving, leaving the Navy. And that was French polishing that he did, which he did for the funeral home, French polishing the tops of coffins, which he was apparently quite a rewarding task, but it didn't last very long. He kind of left that job soon after, soon after starting it, and he recalled in a in an interview later on, "I usually left a job as soon as I got fed up or I had fifty pounds in the bank." So you get this feeling that he never quite really, he never really found his way with any of these jobs in in Scotland as he's he's worked his way through. But the the, the funeral parlour job was quite interesting because um, I read something in Cubby's autobiography. Where he talks about that, and he says, um, and it, and it says that Connery had a very similar upbringing to um, Cubby in many ways. One because they were both raised in a, a tenement, uh, and it wasn't probably wasn't called that where, where um, broccoli came from, but same same situation. They both worked for funeral homes, although Sean was a polisher and broccoli was a, a salesman for a funeral home. But there was obviously this kind of link between the two, and it might have had something. Made maybe made Cubby warm to him in the early days of setting up the Bond series. That's actually um, quite similar to their Bond roles, isn't it? A salesman, broccoli, the producer, and then yeah. the, the polisher, Connery. Well, it's quite, yes, quite yes. nice, it's quite the polisher, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, another interesting thing about it is uh, there's a nice little memory that I found where um, they talk about Cubby talks about they both used they both built snow sleighs on the job. So whilst in their respective roles, they both built these sleighs. Connery used offcuts from the caskets and then um, Cubby used beer barrel staves in his. But yeah, there, there was, a, it was a nice link between the two. So yeah. Oh, and then he, and he called it the coffin as well. Connery did his um, sleigh that he built. Very nice. <laughs> so, that, so yeah, lots of jobs, lots of things going on. And then obviously the big thing that uh, I haven't brought up yet is bodybuilding. Certainly a, a thing close to my heart. 
where <laughs> he began bodybuilding at the age of 18 from 1951 trained heavily with a man called Ellington who was a former gym instructor in the British Army there is a photograph of uh, Tom Connery at the time as this is a quote a well-muscled member of the Dunedin Weightlifting Club Edinburgh and it was in the front inside front cover of Health and Strength magazine Uh, after this Archie Brennan uh, one time Mr Scotland kind of spoke to Connery his personal trainer as well and suggested that two of them enter the London heats of the 1953 Mr Universe contest in the event, Connery took bronze in the tall men's class. And yeah, so he did a good job in that. But he, t- he talks about that uh, being in that contest. And he says, even though he took bronze, he said the other guys were just way more muscular than he was. You look at uh, Connery in a lot of things and you think, by today's standards, he's not that muscly a guy, is he? I mean, you look at these bodybuilders and weightlifters and wrestlers and he just looks like a normal bloke. And at the time, it was kind of the, still the case. Not uh, not as much, but he was really just a real guy. He was a big guy who was fit. He could lift stuff. He could work hard. He wasn't a bodybuilder. And he talks quite a lot about that, where uh, at the uh, 19... I can't remember what the year was. That he was at uh, Mr. Universe Heat. And uh, he's standing next to all of the other Mr. Universe contestants. And he's way taller than a lot of them. He's like a half a head higher. Yeah, he's six foot the, two, the, isn't he? Yeah, then the ne- yeah six foot two, then the next tallest opponent. So he's a lot taller, but he's just nowhere near as big. They're just massive guys, but he's just tall. And um, back in those days, muscle-bound actors were a rarity. You don't see them. You look at a lot of them, and there's this kind of this joke of uh, my dad always talks about it. How every muscular actor just kind of holds their breath in and sticks their <laughs> chest out when they're uh, when they're pretending that they're being muscular. You see, like in like, Tarzan films, so. But Connery, Connery had this kind of real... He was a well-built man. He looked fit. He looked strong. But he wasn't like a fake bodybuilder type. And um, and this deterred him from bodybuilding because he found that Americans who beat him in competitions would do it just because they were so focused on building muscle, whereas he didn't want to do that. He he was an athlete. He liked, he liked sport. He liked doing stuff. So he just said, I'm not doing it anymore because... I'm not interested in that for that. I don't want to just look muscly. I want, I'm an athlete. I want to do stuff. And you talk a bit, you mentioned a bit about his football career and he, um, he did a lot. Of, he was a keen footballer. He played for Bonnie Rig Rose in his younger days and he was also offered a trial with East Fife. I'm not a footballer, football fan, so I didn't read too much into this, but according to reports, Busby, who was a... Matt Busby. Um, yeah. yeah. Was a, was he a manager? Uh, yeah, Manchester. Uh, yeah, I've got a bit on this actually. Yeah, Matt oh, Busby. You do this because you know more about football than me. Well, I'll, I'll talk about it in a minute because it comes a little bit further along in the story. But yeah, he, he came yeah. close to playing for Manchester United. I think that's basically yeah. the gist Well, of it, this is coming it? up next, isn't it? So the um, so the last bit I'd say about this is just something that I don't, you might not have picked up on in the sections that you're going to be going to. But he did have a, one of his first acting gigs wasn't really a, an acting gig, but he got a, a role. There, there was, he found this theatre production for a musical called The Glorious Days and they were looking for six foot plus male extras um, so his first gig was a five week Christmas run where um, he, he played a guards officer on stage purely because he was tall but yeah that kind of covers off his less than interesting non-acting roles yeah so after his big break at Mr Universe um, him and his friend Jimmy Laurie they travelled down to London to um, take part they met one of the other competitors there, a guy called Stan Howlett, and he had uh, been appearing in a touring production of the musical South Pacific, 
And he said the only experience required was that you had to just look good at the back of the stage. And obviously, like you say, that Connery had already had some stage experience in this play. I I thought it was called The Glorious Years, but you said Glorious Days. We'd have to have to double check that. But yeah, he'd had this experience. And so him and his friend Jimmy, they pulled resources, rented a bedsit and and prepared for this uh, audition for South Pacific. They both did the audition. Connery managed to get through. Um, and landed the gig at £12 a week. Um, his friend didn't get a part, but basically he said it was like doing handsprings and stuff like that, and basically chorus line at the back of this thing, and this is really where he caught the acting bug. And the, the, apparently B- Billy Conny t- Connolly tells a funny story um, about Connery at the uh, at the auditions where when they were sort of deciding which actors to take with them, Connery was was going down to the front going, hey, what's the wage, Jimmy? What's the wage? Because he was just desperate to find out how much he was getting paid. He didn't even know if he wanted the job. He just wanted to know how much he was going to get paid for it. Seems um, like a common theme with uh, Connery. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> someone that comes from a, a, a background yeah. where, a deprived background, you do need to know how much money you're getting for it. Yeah. He doesn't want to be taken for a mug. Yeah. So Big Tam... Uh, as he's then known, he, he starts to be known as Shane around this point. So because uh, of the Western film with Alan Ladd. And so then he went on tour around the UK uh, with South Pacific in 1953. And there was an actor in the production called Robert Henderson who took him under his wing, really mentored Connery in the ways of acting, gave him a big, long leading list of books to read to get him up to speed because you know Connery had no formal training in acting and he really just wanted to learn everything he could he wanted to get ahead in acting and he saw this as you know he's getting paid 12 pound a week for for like a few hours of work a day he saw this as a way of working and not really working at the same time so Connery says he actually stayed on tour for longer than 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 originally planned just so that he could go around the country and read the books that he'd been given um, and he would go to the libraries he said I spent my South Pacific tour in every library in Britain, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. And on the, on the nights that we were dark, I'd see every play that I could. But it's the books, the reading that can change one's life. I'm the living experience. So he really just taught himself. And yeah, like I said, it was around this time that he his the touring production, they had a football team and they played a game of football against a Manchester United junior team. And it was then that Matt Busby, the iconic Manchester United manager, offered him the chance to play for Manchester United he did consider it and it was Henderson that decided that sort of convinced him not to take the job at Manchester United saying that an actor has a longer career than a footballer will have so that that was it and he worked his way up from chorus line and ended up in the role of Lieutenant Buzz Adams I'm not very familiar with South Pacific but he'd gone from the back of the stage to the front of the stage basically and so when the, that show came to an end, he was then basically just sharing digs with friends in London, going to auditions on an old bike that he'd bought with the money that he'd earned. And it was there, really, that he then became a jobbing actor. Researching into this, it seems that Henderson was a pretty pivotal part of all of this, really. He he even urged him to go and get elocution lessons. And Connery has spoken about it in, in interviews before. He said his accent was very strong, very sort of regional, and, and that sort of... He went to Maida Vale Theatre and had those lessons to to sort of even out his his accent, I guess. So by this point, he's he's been an extra in a a musical called Lilacs in the Spring. It's a 1954 musical uh, that stars Errol Flynn, and he sort of he's making en- ends meet, but also struggling as well. So he he takes another part time job as as a babysitter and 
But luckily, Henderson, again, he lands uh, Connery a role in uh, an Agatha Christie play called Witness for the Prosecution. And that sort of snowballs his, his theatre career. Fr- from then on, it's, you know, he, he moves into TV because people, you know, TV producers have seen these plays that he's in. So that then goes moves forward and he's in Dixon of Doc Green is an episode of that, which I've, I've never seen because it's quite old. But um, I've heard of it. Sailor of Fortune and the Jack Benny program. So there's small TV parts uh, uh, sort of getting him seen even more so. And so eventually he then makes it into into films. The first one is called No Road Back. That's what's notable for his first film appearance, um, his major film role anyway. It's a 1957 crime film, and he plays a, a gangster with a speech impediment. Uh, and so there's like a, a, a quite a number of films he's in in 1957. There's Hell Drivers, which um, is quite the cast, actually. It's got um, Patrick McGowan, who is a uh, danger man and is in The, the Prisoner. William Hartnell, who of course was the first Doctor, Gordon Jackson, who was in The Professionals, and Sid James, who was in the Carry On series, along with, of course, the first uh, movie Bond, Sean Connery. Uh, Action of the Tiger. Now, this is where we start to see sort of the Bond connection working its way because Action of the Tiger is directed by Terence Young, and so this is where they first meet. And um, I'm sure we'll. As we move on through this episode, we'll realise the importance of that. So in uh, he, he then he does Time Lock, where he plays a welder. That's 1957 as well, so another small part. But by this point, he is making a bit of a career for himself and a bit of a name for himself. Yeah, Hell Drivers, just to say, um, is, is on YouTube and it's it's well worth a watch. I, I really enjoyed it. Well, it's, it's always tough with these. We're going we're gonna to talk quite a lot about old Sean Connery films in this episode. And I find with old actors it's often quite difficult to navigate through the films that are good and bad because not many films in the modern day have lasted from the olden days. And it's not necessarily because they're bad, it's just because they haven't stood the test of time. Yeah. But with Connery's, it's such a mixed bag. Like You look at one and you think, this is awful. And then there might be a good one, but it's so hard to navigate. But before I talk about one of his major things he did, I've, I read something interesting. In 1956, um, he Michael Caine at the time, Micka White at the time, uh, was speaking to Cubby Broccoli and he said to him, uh, do, you, do you remember me? And Broccoli was like, uh, yeah, you, you were in the, that film I worked on called How to Murder a Rich Uncle. Um, and he said, oh yeah, do you remember the other guy that auditioned for the role as well? And Broccoli was like, no. And it was Connery. So Connery had already auditioned for a, a Broccoli role mm. called How to, for a film called How to Murder a Rich Uncle. It's only, it was only a little part. Um, so he, he probably wouldn't remember him, but I thought that was interesting that he he there was a bit of getting involved at that early age, and he just not even noticed him. So yeah, after after these early his earlier gigs, um, he 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 got involved in something that was quite relatively big for what he was doing, not by today's standards because he's not really known for this, and most people probably wouldn't even remember this. But there was a film or a TV series called Requiem for a Heavyweight that came around. It's a US series that came around in. Uh, 1956. I don't. Um, I think it's a. T- I think it's a TV film rather than a series. Is it a series? Yeah, a I think, teleplay, it's, I think it's just a one-off. Yeah. Yeah, teleplay um, written by Rod Sterling for a, a show called Playhouse 90, which I'm presuming is a series of just one-off episodes. In that series, Jack Palance um, plays Harlan Mountain McClintock, 
um, a once promising but now washed up boxer who faces the end of his career after he is savagely defeated by a younger boxer. He's suffering from dementia, uh, sorry, dementia pugilistica, uh, which is also known as punch drunk syndrome. And a fight doctor refuses to certify him for further boxing, saying that another rough match would kill, uh, could blind or even kill him. So that was the US version. Sean Connery wasn't in that, but he was in the BBC television version that came around in 1957, uh, which was retitled Blood Money on the Sunday night theatre anthology show. So he took uh, Connery took the role of uh, McClintock, um, and there was also starred Warren Mitchell and Rakoff, who was the producer on its future wife Jacqueline Hill, uh, and Michael Caine again featured in a small role in that. It was reviewed in the Times newspaper, uh, and they said although physically uh, miscast as the fighter, uh, Sean Connery played with a shambling and inarticulate charm that almost made the love affair credible. Not quite sure how to take that one, but uh, <laughs> not sure how Sean would take that. The, that version of the film hasn't survived, although they did discover a complete recording of the soundtrack in 2014, but I'm not sure where you can find that. Uh, six years later, it was adapted as a 1962 feature film starring Anthony Quinn, Jackie Gleason, Mickey Rooney and Julie Harris. So you can actually find that one quite easily. But um, I think yeah. there's a bit of a lucky break for him, Connery, from reading books about it, because I think Palance was supposed to do the play, the TV play, and he had to yeah. pull out at the very last minute. And so they had to scramble around to find someone who was available. And I think Connery, I can't remember how, how it came to him, but possibly the, the director's wife had seen him in something and thought he had the appeal that would, you know, it would work yeah. for, for men and women because, you know, he's, he's so attractive. But yeah, it, quite an interesting and fortuitous turn of events, I think, that got him into the Requiem for a heavy, Heavyweight. Yeah, so I certainly, when you when you t- read about or, or, li- or watch... Um, documentaries about Connery being Bond one of the big aspects of it is this kind of butch butch like male strength that he's got he looks like a brawler he looks like a fighter that definitely helped him I imagine that that's something that Cubby and people watched when they were doing Bond and they could see that he was a proper fighter and that's something that crops up as well in a, as we'll go into that later when you look at the other actors that were planned as being possibles for Bond they just didn't have that ability to look like they could actually throw a punch like David Niven and people, you can't imagine him in a film called Blood Money. So yeah, and after after that happened, things started happening big time for Connery, or at least they sound like they did, uh, when he got a deal with 20th Century Fox. Um, and he signed, it was a seven-year contract with uh, 20th Century Fox at the time, and that was worth around £6,000 a year. So that was a contract that meant that he just got paid for them, whether he did any work or not. They had to find him work. If they didn't, they still got paid, which... On paper, sounds like an amazing thing. And at the time, for somebody like Sean, who's, you know, doing all these different little gigs, absolute dream, just getting all these, or just getting paid for necessarily doing anything that you want to do. Nowadays, uh, the contract would have been worth around, oh, sorry, 2007. Nobody's actually worked it out since then. In 2007, uh, it would have been worth £100,000. So that's pretty big books, especially for somebody like Sean, who probably wasn't making that much money at the time. Mm. But he actually did a lot more work outside of that as well. So if you account for all of the other little tasks he did, like modelling and stuff like that, he was probably earning about £250,000 a year on 2007 standards. But during that period, um, he realised that it sounds good on paper, but it's not really that good because they weren't finding him a lot of good roles to do. He didn't really pick up any good acting parts in, in films or TV. And so, yeah, he got this regular paycheck, but they just weren't... 20th Century Fox just weren't fa- finding him anything good. And he was like this... 
we talk a bit about him earlier about him being a jobbing actor, and here he was kind of like a jobbing contractor. He was just he would do occasionally do something for Fox, then he'd do something. He'd be Disney would pay him to do something, and then someone else would hire him out to do something. So he wasn't really in control of his career. He was just doing all sorts. And that's kind of what I was talking about earlier, where I was saying he's just got such a diverse range of things. And nobody really knew what to do with him. He was like one second doing a kid's film, the next second doing a fighting film, the next second he's a baddie and all these these little jobbing things that didn't really work. So, yeah, they could just couldn't find anything that would fit his his nascent talents. And they never really did up until he, he started on Bond. He never there's nothing he did that really fit with him and they, and they knew what he wanted to do so yeah and then um he moved on to better things yeah i think it's that it's there you can sort of trace back his sort of distrust of long-term contracts which i think obviously yeah. will come into play mm. later on but yeah you, like you say he, he was a he was a gigging actor at the time and, and one of his most important uh, roles that he picked up due to the connections that he made on it was in 1957 in a tv play an adaptation of the Eugene O'Neill play Anna Christie he'd ha- actually been in this play uh, on the stage and so um, when he joined the cast one of the other actors who was in the cast sought him out for advice because he knew the play inside out and that other person was a 24 year old Australian actor called Diane Salento who will figure large in the Sean Connery story because he eventually marries her at the time she was married to an Italian writer called Andre Volpe and talking about Connery she said she didn't really take to him at first. She felt that he had a big chip on his shoulder. But because of his prior knowledge of the play, they worked together, they would rehearse together, they would get together and, and spend a lot of time together. And actually they kept their relationship very private, obviously because she was married. And so it's not very clear how long it was before they started having an intimate relationship. Could have been a couple of years by um, all accounts. But anyway, she was upper class, well-educated, well-travelled and also as ambitious as Connery. Because you say, you know, he was contracted, but he really was keen to work and really to get ahead and become a movie star. Because you can imagine, he's in his late 20s now and you think if he hasn't made it now, he might never make it. So it's quite an interesting time for him to meet this this lady. So she'd ha- had a lot of acting experience. She'd married quite young. She had a young child already with Volpe and... during this period when they were sort of spending a lot of time together uh, like I said a relationship blossomed it was at this time that they both started to learn a bit more about the craft of acting and one of the things that they did together was study movement under a Swedish acting coach called Jat Malmgren and he formed a a famous acting school in London Um, he was a former ballet dancer and he um, obviously helped Sean to learn how to move and again this becomes really important when we come to Bond for, for, for many different reasons but it's also at this point that the idea of method acting becomes very popular so you've got uh, Marlon Brando and James Dean and Connery's looking to that world to expand his horizons and learn more about acting because as you know like at this time the, the late 50s acting was about to go through a huge revolution mm-hmm. from this very stagey sort of way of acting to a more natural way of acting and this is where Connery really finds his his niche so other people that have studied at Yat Malmgren's uh, movement school include Piers Brosnan mm. Colin Firth Anthony Hopkins uh, uh, listeners can't see Brendan's face here but suddenly <laughs> he just lit up <laughs> Uh, other Bond alumni include uh, Helen McCrory she studied there as well as well as uh, Michael Fassbender and also Mm. a possible future Bond Tom Hardy although I don't think he will be Um, but they've all studied at the same place that studies uh, movement which I thought was fascinating Mm, yeah Yeah. yeah. 
So, he is then signed on to... Well, he's not signed on, it's part of his deal. He's in Another Time, Another Place, this 1958 film, opposite Lana Turner. Uh, it's about an American reporter, played by Tur- Turner, um, working in London during the last year of the war, uh, who begins an affair with a reporter named Mark. And that's played by Connery. This isn't the interesting thing about this. <laughs> Brace yourself, <laughs> this is incredible. So while they're shooting this film, 1957... I think it's in, yeah, it's in Hertfordshire, Borenwood. I think on location as well, in, in possibly in Cornwall. I, uh, I could be wrong, but... Um... Well, the other part of the film? Yeah. Shot on in, oh, right, okay. So, Lana Turner, she is regarded... Her, her career's on a bit of a downward slope, but she is considered like a, a Hollywood sex symbol of the day. You know, the classic Hollywood lead actor. Connery's relative, relatively fresh-faced, as we've discovered. You know, he's been you know, a few years in the movies. It's only his sixth or seventh film. And there'd been some gossip about the, the, the two leads having a bit of uh, real romance outside. You know, and there's reports of that when they're shouting cut that the two actors are carrying on. And that gets out and the press are reporting it. And so at the time... Turner's boyfriend is a guy called Johnny Stompanato. What a great name, by the way. And he is a, a mob enforcer, like, like a bodyguard for the mob, uh, who's got a massive reputation in Hollywood you know, of being this violent guy who just goes around, throwing his weight around and getting what he wants. So much so that even Frank Sinatra had to ask Mickey Cohen, who's his, his mate, to tell Stompanato to stay away from Ava Gardner. So this this guy is, you know, he does do what he wants. It doesn't matter who it is, he's doing what he wants. And so Stompanato gets gets wind of this and he's obviously not happy with Turner and, and Connery. So he hears the rumours and he gets into an absolute rage and he calls Turner and he threatens to come and disfigure her and kill her. And then he boards a plane with the intent to deal with Connery. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. And then he shows up at the studios where they're filming and he turns up right at the scene when they're doing an embracing scene on a couch. So what a time. To, I mean, a man who's already in a rage and he comes in on that. Brilliant. So he watches a few takes of this. <laughs> Let's the blood boil a little bit more each time. And he gets a pistol out and he points it at Connery. And he says, take your hands off of Turner. So what does Connery do? Well, he grabs Stampanato by the wrist in a swift move, twists it, the gun comes loose, and he decks him with one punch. As you know, as though it's an audition for Bond. Wow. <laughs> um so Scotland Yard then come and escort Stompanato from the set. And then he was deported from, from the UK because he breached gun laws in this country. And apparently this was caught on camera because they were shooting at the time. There's no footage of it. Unfortunately, no matter how much you search, that it's not oh, out there. But imagine he's got that. Oh, wouldn't that be good? <laughs> and so that's not the end of the story. So sometime after it's wrapped, Connery's working on uh, another film, which I think you're going to cover, Darby O'Gill and the Little People. And so he hears that Johnny Stompanato has been killed at Lana Turner's house in 1958, this is. And it was Turner's 13-year-old daughter that stabbed Stompanato to death with a butcher knife because she'd seen him attack um, her mum. 
and threaten to mess up her face. Doing a classic Stompanato. Seems to oh, it's just Stompanato all yeah. over. And so the, the the killing was then ruled justifiable, you know, because it it was reasonable force. So after the the death of Stompanato, they get personal. The, the letters are released and they're published and back and forth between Connery and Turner. So you know, it, some were quite flirtatious. So there was there was you know smoke and fire. You know, it it, it did happen. But then Cohen, Mickey Cohen, remember before the friend of Stompanato, he, he's vowed to get revenge on anyone who's involved in this story. And so Connery gets a phone call in his hotel room and it's Mickey Cohen. He goes, get your ass out of town. So Connery's just starting his career. He's getting somewhere with his career. He does not need this. And, you know, he's 27. He's finally in, in some decent stuff. But he, he knew that this was, this was quite, quite a big deal. So he did, he just packed his bag and he did disappear. He said, I didn't know what I was dealing with and I didn't see any point in discussing it. So he knew, he knew when to cut his losses because that's not something you want to get involved with. But what a story. What a story. I mean, it's unreal, isn't it? Yeah. It, you imagine that's, it? That's, that's one of those stories of yesteryear Hollywood <laughs> that just wouldn't happen now. It just it, seems yeah. so ridiculous. Get, yeah, absolutely. Just amazing. But the way he dealt with it as well. I mean, he's just yeah. a no-nonsense guy, though, isn't he? There's that really funny, the, a famous story of, as well of him uh, standing up to a gang in Edinburgh and 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 just whacking six guys, and then and then then basically yes. like, yeah, it set his reputation up. Didn't yeah, it? It set his reputation up, and mm. it just it, it, you know he was a no-nonsense guy, and he would stand up for himself. And like you say, six foot two, well built, yeah. Yeah. Uh, shoulders like massive shoulders. You just wouldn't mess with him, would you? He's Absolutely probably the Bond I'd least want to have a fight with. And that's, that's another podcast we'll, we'll do in the future. <laughs> so uh, before uh, I move on to the next bit, uh, interestingly, and I remembered this when I you, you brought up uh, another time, another place. It's actually referenced at the start of Thunderball. There's a little, um, nowadays you'd call it an Easter egg, but it wasn't an Easter egg at the time. It was kind of a nod to one of his earlier films where I, I think it's at the start where he's leaving the clinic um, and I, I can't remember what the lady says to him, but he responds with "another time, another place." Ah, it's nice. quite nice. It was like, it, like in a time before Easter eggs existed, yeah. that that they were doing that. And I remember seeing that at the time, and I think my dad said to me, "Oh, that's that film." I was like, "What are you talking about? Didn't do that in these. <laughs> didn't, do that, didn't do that in the old days." But yeah, that's a, there you go, a little nod. So next time you're watching it, that's what he's referencing. So you mentioned Darby O'Gill, which is frankly one of the most diverse films that that Connery's career has taken on. It's a 1959 American fantasy adventure by Disney Productions. So Connery's been in quite a few different kind of famous series. He's obviously been in the Bond series. He's been in Disney, which is just in itself like a, you know, a thing to say I've been in a Disney film. And uh, and then of course Hitchcock film as well. So he's ticking off a lot of these big these big things, but um, I'd probably say that Darby O'Gill is, is the least impressive of, of all of them. It's a very strange film. It's I I, I tried to write a little short synopsis of it, but it's all over the shop. It's a basically it's, a leprechaun um, story, isn't it? In, in in Ireland, it's really it's some there's an old guy called Darby O'Gill. He gets ends up with a load of leprechauns in Ireland because um, Sean Connery's hired to take over the farm he works on. He becomes friends with Sean Connery. Sean Connery 
sing some songs. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of singing in there's, it. There is. A, I think so, he, he does the one singing. Oh, the, the Leprechauns do some singing. Basically, it's on Disney Plus, and I would just, yeah. I would, I would recommend people watching it. Watch it. Just, it's, yeah, it's watch weird. it, but don't probably just keep your finger on the fast forward button because it's very odd. And I think, I, I mean, it, it's about Irish people, so it doesn't really get the kind of old school racism stuff, but it is very, very. <laughs> Like close to the mark with a lot of the stuff, it's it's a little bit stereotypical with all of the Irish stuff in there, which is probably why it's not stood the test of time. People don't really talk about it as a classic Disney film, but um, so that was yeah, Darby Gill, and it, even though it's not one of his most impressive roles, it probably is quite important to him getting the role of, of Bond because in a lot of the discussions that happened before Doctor No, they used Darby O'Gill as a, a as a reference point so like could be Dana and um and various other people would watch Darby O'Gill because that there's he plays there's a lot of things he does in that film as almost he's, he's not a leading man he's a kind of semi-leading man but you can see a lot of the his his roles come out that you can't see in in some of his other films the reception of the film um he got a lot of praise for it actually Connery the New York Times praised the cast the whole cast but described Connery as being merely tall dark and handsome so not great from uh, the New York Times um, and called the film an overpoweringly charming concoction of standard Gaelic tall stories, fantasy and romance. Variety said the film was a rollicking Gaelic fantasy, which I don't think is often used as a phrase, uh, meticulously painstaking production. And this is one of the big things that the film's famous for because its production is, at the time, it's all over, it's like really impressive how they've done some of the shots and it looks stupid now, but leprechauns are about three inches high. And it's actually fairly convincing how they've, how they've done it in comparison to a lot of old films. Uh, a gem of a performance from Sharp, though Connery was called artificial and the weakest link in Robert Stevenson's otherwise distinguished direction. Los Angeles Times wrote, um, Being a Disney product, it is technically perfect a job as can be. The Technicolor, the camera work, the special effects, the Irish music and all are a rich feast for anyone's eye and ear. So that was a pretty big deal for Connery and it was just probably one of the first mainstream things he did he'd obviously done a lot of stuff before but this was for families and and everyone so he he was picked up by a lot of people that wouldn't have seen him before and then another film that he did around that time 1959 was tarzan's great adventure i haven't seen this and it was a series of tarzan there's a back in the olden days there were a lot of tarzan films different actors playing tarzan all different types of, of tarzan things and this was it was a slightly different Tarzan film and it was quite popular because it was it wasn't a kids film a lot of the Tarzan films that came out at the time were very kid orientated a, a Tarzan that couldn't really speak Jane lots of monkeys cuz comic relief and all this kind of stuff it wasn't like that it was like a proper adult film that had proper villains in it robbers and all this kind of stuff cast included Anthony Quayle and there was a kind of a suspense element to it the Tarzan in it played by Gordon Scott who did I think he did a few of them he's quite literate he can t- he can speak normally he's not just like he's not just like shouting at people and swinging through trees uh, he's, there's no Jane in it and Con- anyway T- Connery plays a baddie in it he, and he gets quite a lot of praise for this role and Gordon Scott who was the guy who played Tarzan said um, Connery was marvellous he and I had some good giggles when we got back to Shepperton they wanted to use him in the next Tarzan even though he gets killed in this one because he was very good. He said, okay, but he had to do this thing for Broccoli and Saltzman. And that was Dr. No. We couldn't touch him after that. So any any ideas that they had of getting him back in the Tarzan series were very quickly quashed when they when, when um, he started working on, on the Bond series. And then there's a load of other films he's done after that. 
Yeah, I think one thing to say about Tarzan is that it, it, he um, it, uh, he got the opportunity to film abroad. Obviously, he'd filmed in um, Hollywood, but I think he got to actually f- f- film in Africa, which I think would have been a, quite an eye-opening experience from the boy from Fountain Bridge at that yeah. time. So this is where things really start to kick off. Obviously, you've had A Requiem for a Heavyweight, Darby O'Gill, this big Disney film, and then he gets a bunch of things that really you can see his career is starting to snowball one of them is called the age of kings it's his bbc's most lavish 15 part adaptation of um shakespeare's history plays um so from richard ii and then all the henry film uh, henry plays and up to richard iii so that aired in april of that year i think it was every other week and it was called the most uh, on the bbc website where it's still listed it's, it's listed as the most ambitious shakespeare cycle yet attempted on stage or screen presenting eight of the playwright's history plays in 15 parts there are 600 speaking parts in this series and obviously sean connery is just one of them but other bond alumni that are in the age of kings are include judy dench and julian glover wow he played uh henry percy to king hal connery and that this is a part that he will refer back to many times in the future when people sort of just want to associate him with bond you know, people will always say, oh, you know, he played a great Hotspur in, in Shakespeare as well. He then appeared in a BBC play called Without the Grail. He was then in a TV version of a Terence Rattigan play where he played Alexander the Great. And that actually landed landed him a cover, uh, a Radio Times cover. Got like curly blonde hair, like the classic Alexander the Great uh, look. He then starred in the BBC's uh, lavish adaptation of Anna Karenina which seems to be something the BBC does every 10 to 15 years. He then had a part in a Soho gangster film called The Frightened City, and then a, a, a British comedy called On the Fiddle, which was edited by Peter Hunt, who obviously goes on to edit the films, and he becomes one of the, you know, another person fighting in, for the, in the corner of Connery to land him the gig in Doctor No. Just one of many people. Uh, in that in that group of um, producers on that film. Finally, as the last part of his Fox deal, he got a part in Daryl F. Zanuck's The Longest Day, which I don't know if any of you have seen, but it's a three-hour-long World War II film, and it's famous for having hundreds and hundreds of really famous people in it, including John Wayne, Kenneth Moore, Richard Todd, Robert Mitchum, Richard Burton... Henry Fonda, Peter Lawford. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Other people you might recognise, Gert Frobe is in it. Um, it's the man who would go on to play Goldfinger. But, I mean, this this film is three hours long and Connery's role amounts to, what, like one scene. It's barely a cameo. But that was yeah. but that would be the end of his deal with Fox, basically, that, that, that role in The Longest Day. Yeah, he's certainly picked up... I mean, we, we talk quite a bit about him as a jobbing act, uh, as a jobbing just... Laborer, he did so many different jobs and so many different. Probably picked up a lot of skills. That's his whole acting career up until this point, through and through. If you've watched, I've watched a bit of On the Fiddle, and it's a comedy film. Like it's almost like a carry-on film or like a sort of bringing up baby film. And the the role he plays in that, like, you should watch a few clips of it because I don't think I've ever seen Connery play proper comedy. He plays, he adds a bit of comedy, like you know, Last Crusade and stuff, where he's there's a comedy element to him, but. This is just a comedy film. It's got Barbara Windsor in it. It's, um, yeah, you wouldn't expect him to be in that film. So he's obviously, he's learning a lot from doing all these different kind of diverse roles. And The Frightened City as well is very dark, a very dark gangster film. And he's 
playing a baddie. So yeah, there's, he's picking a lot of these things up, which a lot of Bonds probably haven't done. He's got such a diverse range of, of things. That he's, he's a proper actor, isn't he? Considering he had no formal training, you can see at this point that he's got yeah. such a wealth of experience in acting. Yeah. And even at the time, he probably wasn't enjoying those manual jobs and labour jobs he was doing as a, as a youngster. But also in this contract with 20th Century Fox, he probably wasn't at the time enjoying it. But it was all, he was learning so much getting and doing all these roles that he probably wouldn't have got if he'd just got a series or, you know, typecast from an early age. So, yeah, he's, um, yeah, it's well worth watching. I, if, if there's any of those you should take a look at on the fiddle, because it's just ridiculous. I don't imagine you look back on that film thinking, what a great film that was. <laughs> So now we come into the part of the story where it gets interesting, especially for the listeners who came in to listen to this podcast because they like James Bond. <laughs> They've just had to go through an hour of non-Bond related content. So um, Doctor No, 1962, where we see Connery take on the not only his first time as Bond, but the first time the world has seen Bond as a, in, a, in a film. Directed by Terence Young and, of course, based on the 1958 novel of the same name. Not the first Bond book which obviously they couldn't get because they couldn't have Casino Royale at the time because that had already been sold. So they, they, they jumped at the chance to get Dr. No as, as, the first, as the first Bond film. Obviously, the film, we all, we all know the story, but it's all about the disappearance of a British agent, trail leads Sean Connery or 007, to the underground base of Dr. No, where he's trying to stop a space launch from Cape Canaveral with a radio beam weapon. Amazing film. We love it. It's... Uh, the first time we've ever seen Bond and Sean Connery on screen in, as, as, as Bond. The role itself was obviously the first time that Bond had ever existed. So there were lots of lots of actors associated with it at the time. Sean Connery was not the first choice. There were many others. And Richard, there was Richard Todd, who apparently Fleming fancied for the role. I don't actually know who that is. Dirk Bogard, Trevor Howard, David Niven, James Stewart, Richard Burton, Cary Grant. I also read that... James Mason was mm. also thought of as in, in the role because he had these cruelly good-looking like style to him, like Fleming's original, a bit darker, a bit more sinister, so, and obviously he's very, very British, which is which something that obviously Ian Fleming was very, very keen on. But at that time, all these actors—Harrison, Niven, Mason, Redgrave—they they would have agreed to play Bond. But the thing is that they already had careers; they were established stars. And they were just unlikely to want to do a series. And at the time, Saltzman and, and Broccoli, they, want, they, they wanted this to be a series. They wanted somebody to sign up to, to get Well, they had the rights things. to make all those films that, that existed at that yeah. time, wasn't it? It was a f- seven films, maybe. They, and they wanted yeah. someone to come in to do all, all of them because they just wanted to bash them out. They, they just saw it as a yeah. money-making exercise, right? I think the other person well, exactly. that was really, really um, considered was Patrick McGowan. And I feel like he was the one that really was the most likely to get it. But he turned it down on grounds of, uh, on moral grounds. He saw that Bond was a sadist and he thought the violence was Mm. just un... un He loved a bit of violence. Danger, man. Yeah. But no, that was that that was the one I thought was the the closest to do it. And obviously he'd just been in Hell Riders with Connery, but... um, Well, Cary Grant was incredibly close as well. Like, well, all, the, the, all but signed, but he only wanted to do one. That was the problem. Well, that's yeah. The Cary Grant thing is an interesting one because North by Northwest, obviously, is probably one of the closest films in the, that previously existed that was almost like a, a benchmark for what they wanted to do. Mm. That everyone had seen North by Northwest and said, "We want that. That's what we want. That's the way that these spy films are working." And North by Northwest, in many ways, kicked off that whole spy genre that happened 
for the next 10 years. And and there were discussions with Hitchcock actually doing Doctor No, directing it because of North by Northwest. But Broccoli and Zaltzman didn't have the money. This wasn't an established... They weren't, a, a, they weren't as big as Hitchcock. They, they also... This film series wasn't established. It wasn't that big at the time. It was fairly popular book series but by no means like the biggest book ever made it was it wasn't like they were desperate and people were desperate to see this film so dr no was a quarter of the budget of north by northwest so when they wanted an actor they couldn't get niven people because they only had a million pounds for this film you can't go to david niven and say oh we've only got i think i can't remember what you got paid i think it was like six grand or something yeah i think it was six thousand pounds he gets for dr no connery yeah. does which for connery pretty big deal but for these actors not really a they, they wouldn't care about that they'd want a lot more money and people like Broccoli would have to say right we're going to remove the special effects we're going to remove these other things just to get this actor in so Broccoli always subsequently claimed that he'd, he was adamant that the part of Bond required an unknown actor not a star but possibly not because that's what the role wanted but because they just didn't have the money and that, that's what they had to go for and maybe if they did have the money at the time they would have gone for somebody like Cary Grant but they didn't and that's it'd be in, it's interesting to think about it now we still we always work on that principle don't we that it's an unknown actor we want not a star somebody who owns the role might, that's probably because of that that's probably because at that point they had to do that it wasn't an option and then they've, they've stuck with the guns with that I've got quite a long quote here um, which is quite interesting about Broccoli and Connery uh, so after knowing him from another time another place and seeing him in Derby he's, he's talked about um, Connery and says Sean's looks and explicit body language cast him in irresistibly as 007. To be candid, all the British actors I'd interviewed, while very talented, lacked the degree of masculinity Bond demanded. To put it in the vernacular of our profession, Sean had the balls for the part. I was convinced that he was the closest we could get to Fleming's superhero. The character was written as a semi-sadistic operator, well manicured, but with a streak of mercilessness about him. The more I thought of Connery, the more he seemed to fit the image we had of Commander James Bond. So yeah, you can see that's it's in, he's not just talking about one facet of Connery. There's lots of elements that they they want of him. They want him to be hard. They want him to be look good. They want him to be uh, cool. All these different things that people like Niven probably didn't have. Niven was cool. He wasn't ma- macho and you could you didn't see him in a fight. Um, so eventually they, um, Cubby and Harry met with Connery and it was a really interesting meeting. If you, I, I won't do quotes and stuff here because it's quite a long meeting. But they, they invited him for a meeting because they'd seen him in Derby again and all this kind of stuff. And um, they just he just came to the room and they were just like, he's just brilliant. He's just exactly what we want. And even though Fleming was saying, I want somebody like Niven who's refined and stuff, they they didn't necessarily want that. They wanted they wanted to make money. They they didn't care that it, Fleming was going, he's not true to the, the true to the book. They were thinking, we want women to like him. We want men to like him. We want kids to like him. So Connery walked in and he was like, they said, he's look at him. He's just perfect for all of these things. But in the meeting, it came down to to money. There was a big argument about money at the time. And he was like, he, apparently he was banging his fist on the table and saying, tell me about the money. I want, I want to know about the money. And um, eventually, Connery kind of says, I think in a later interview, that he was putting it on a bit just to get more money out of them. But interestingly, he refused to do a screen test as well. Yeah. Because screen, I think it was suggested that he saw screen tests as kind of like he shouldn't have to do it. It was belittling him. He, 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 when really screen tests are just to see if there's any issues that you need to iron out. But they eventually sent some footage to them. They they, they filmed some some footage from the from the film and um, yeah, and I think that, I think they 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 did it under the pretense that it was a screen test for the female actor, and they so they got him to yeah. do it, and then they sent that off to United Artists. 
um, yeah. who were funding the film, United Artists, um, they cabled uh, Cubby Broccoli. Sorry, yeah, Cubby Broccoli cabled Saltzman after United Artists had seen the the footage and said New York did not care for Connery. Feel we can do better. So the studio yeah. was not yeah, convinced. Yeah. But I love the story of the meeting. Yeah. He he turned up and he was basically just wearing b- trousers and a, and a jumper, and he just looked yeah. scruffy. He was definitely not the debonair secret agent yeah. with the slick hair and all that sort of stuff. He was just not not what they expected. But they said that when he when he left, they both went to the window to watch him cross the street, and it was then that they saw his movement. Yeah, and they sort of talk about him moving like a big jungle cat, the panther, and blah blah blah. Yeah, and that yeah. comes down from you know this movement training that he'd done, um, and how as a six foot two man he he moved with natural grace. And that's really what it wanted. And when you think about it, when they talk about Niven being Fleming's choice, Bond is modelled on Fleming in the books. He's upper class. He's privately educated. He's a snob. He's sophisticated. These are none of these things Connery is. And if yeah. and if they had cast Niven or someone of that ilk, someone of that you know posh upper crust, like weedy, like mustache, British, yeah. that yeah. would not work for Bond. It would turn people no. off. It, no. especially international or, or it would it would a certain type of person would like it but it's not it's not got, it's not everyone. a global appeal it's not accessible it for everyone it, it wouldn't have broken the mold no it wouldn't it wouldn't have stood no. out that's that's no. what you that's why you needed connery yeah yeah he was a he was a gamble but they knew what they wanted and they they picked the right guy for the job i mean yeah he's even now we talk about craig and people saying he's got that bit of connery he's got that bit of the the manliness and all that kind of stuff but he is the the carbon print of the manliness of Bond, isn't he? It, it's all in in Connery. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, interestingly, th- I read something as well that uh, there's a, there was a report that Connery won the role through a contest. I don't know if you read, I read this. this yeah, find James Bond, um, and apparently it's untrue that that he wasn't. They didn't get him through his contest, but the contest did actually exist, yeah. and they did this contest to find the next James Bond, and they screen tested all these people, just like these competition entrants. And they Broccoli Saltzman and Fleming did these screen tests. It sounds ridiculous. It sounds like a <laughs> X Factor, like a, co- a stupid competition that a load of the bosses have got pulled into by the marketing department that they've got to do. But the, w- the winner of the contest was a twenty-year-old model called Peter Anthony, who, according to Broccoli, had a Gregory Peck quality, but just wasn't able to cope with the role. So interesting thought I, that that cropped up. Um, I've got a story here from when Connery was introduced to Fleming. Fleming, uh, Ian Fleming, the author of the books. He he. After after they after they left, he told his friend Sir John Morgan. Um, he said that couldn't be further from my idea of James Bond. Everything was wrong. The face, the accent, the hair, just was not right for what Fleming had imagined. He wasn't the only one either. There was a famous Hollywood columnist at the time, Sheila Graham, and she had come over to the UK after after he had been cast to investigate what was going on, and she was just adamant that he was wrong. Um, and she also said that Fleming, although he never publicly admitted it, also said that he was a bad choice. She later actually recanted her, her statement and said, you know, I was wrong. She definitely yeah. got it wrong at that point. But he was ahead of his time. Yeah. He was he was they 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 took a gamble on him and they were right that that's what i mean to be fair to on in their defense he'd made 10 films he'd been a bit part yeah. actor mm-hmm. he wasn't well known he it's a scottish yeah. accent which for, to a lot of people was incomprehensible so you can see yeah. where the resistance is and actually it's amazing that the gamble paid off really and that's a testament to 
that first film you know dr no yeah. is a is a spy masterpiece and i know it doesn't really yeah. rank high in you know the rankings but without that film there would be no from russia with love yeah. Con- uh, but, you know golfing yeah. yeah but you've yeah. got to you've got to add that element of it as well that they didn't have the choice of all of the these other people so they maybe they would have gone for grant or somebody if they could so maybe it was just luck that they couldn't have them and they had to go for this guy. That, well, that's that, often that the case, afford. isn't it, with filmmaking, is it always comes down to the compromise, doesn't it? You you have an ideal yeah. of what you want to do, but in the end yeah. you have to work with what you've got. And yeah. ultimately it worked in their favour. But, you know, one step either side and it could have gone horribly wrong. And really... Yeah. You, but that's the same with anything in the film industry. Yeah. It's There's a massive part that is it all just comes together for certain films. Look at something like Star Wars. That could have been another... I don't know, cruel or something like that. Yeah, nobody liked it, but it just all worked. And with Doctor No, it just worked. The money, the cast, everything, and it just it just pulled together. But I guess interestingly, though, that quote that you talked about with um, Fleming, he said, uh, "I'm looking for a Commander Bond and not an overgrown stuntman." Yeah, which is nice. (laughs) But I guess one of the big credits, or one of the people that should take a lot of credit for transforming Connery into Bond. You know, we have this image of what Bond is now. And what Connery was like then, but transforming him to that, a lot of it rests on Terence Young, who is like the proto Bond. He is very much the debonair gentleman who I think really shepherded Connery from being the actor to being the star that we see in those in those early films. Yeah, he went out and he, he styled him, didn't he? he? He took him to, he got his hair done, he took him to a tailor and got suits made for him. He's the one that told him to sleep in a suit as yeah. well, to get a feel for the suit and just live in, in the suit and become Bond. And yeah, uh, Lois Maxwell also said, Terence took Sean under his wing, he took him to dinner, showed him how to walk, how to talk, even how to eat. Mm. A lot of a lot of the hard work being put in there is, is Terence Young, who sort of uh, shined that, the, the rough diamond of, of Connery. There's, um, there's an interesting... Uh, I don't know if this is true. I've read it a few times, actually, in researching it, but apparently Fleming wasn't a fan of Connery in, in the early days, and we all know that he warmed, obviously warmed to him over time. But I, I read it that he was so impressed with Connery's performance in Doctor No that he actually used Connery's heritage as a Scottish heritage yeah. and wrote it into the books in, in subsequent... In you only lived twice. yeah. yeah. Because he liked him so much after that, which I think is a lovely uh, like tribute nod to, yeah. to Connery. What an absolute turnaround as well. Yeah. <laughs> but that, obviously that film, Doctor No, was a hit. I mean, it wasn't a massive hit in America, but it was a hit here. And Yeah, it didn't make loads of money, did it? But it, it was a success, but only just... Yeah, and I think in America they didn't really trust it and it sort of went on uh, the driving circuit. It wasn't like a huge release over there, but it was it was a yeah. hit here and it really established Bond um, and, and Connery as an actor. So we talked a bit earlier about Connery's marriage to Chilento and he was waiting for, for, for her divorce from her previous husband to come through until eventually in 1962 they they got married and, the, and they had a son. So Sean's, oh, oh, Connery's only got one son, Jason Connery, born in 1963 and he's also a writer and I think a director at the moment. So they were going to get married the same month or the same couple of months that Dr. No was being released which was October, November in that year and, but they wanted it to be a, a pretty quiet wedding as you can imagine from from Connery and the fact that she'd been married before as well there was not a lot I could find out but I've read so many different kind of reports of uh, of the wed uh, well of, of their marriage and it all kind of goes into the subsequent stories about what happened with them 
afterwards with the divorce later on, which we'll talk about when we come to that. But one interesting story I found about is that on the day they were they were getting married, they were actually getting married at a register office in Gibraltar, and and Connery was waiting for for, for Cilento to to turn up, but she she was across the sea in Algiers, Algiers. Uh, and but a policeman hadn't stamped her passport, so she couldn't actually come over to the wedding um, with Sean just waiting for her. So he had to get a ferry over to to get her, and then get the ferry back to take her to the registry office on the, on the wedding day. And I think the marriage certificates were signed by two taxi drivers at the registry office. So it was a pretty pretty small ordeal. It's um, yeah, not a lot going on. They had a honeymoon in the Costa del Sol. And yeah, but by all accounts, and we'll talk about this a bit more in detail, but the marriage had a lot of issues. Obviously, they were both actors. They were both young actors and they both had a lot of, there was a lot of competition in, 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 in the relationship. So um, she was she was acting in lots of films until the point where she actually got Oscar nominated for Best Supporting Actress in a film called Tom Jones. And Connery at the time was quite heavily into Bond by that point. He was, he was I think it, it got to the point where he was in Goldfinger. And there was some discussion around that film and 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 her getting the, the the nomination that he wasn't jealous of her role, but he it was more to do with him and he was doing these films that would never they would never get those kind of acclaims because they were action films and and he was on this kind of money trail really of hitting going for the big films with with Bond and it wasn't really art it was more like you know he was in it for the money so yeah so. Um, so yeah, they they were married and they they had uh, that one one kid, Jason. So yeah, from like I said, Doctor No was a hit. wasn't a massive hit in America, but it did prompt UA to green light from Russia with Love pretty much straight away, and they agreed to double the budget uh, with Eon. So one million dollars to make Doctor No, two million to make from Russia with Love. At this point, actually, Connery starts regretting having signed a multi-picture deal and actually went back to Eon to renegotiate his deal. Diane Shilento later said there was a long legal wrangle which entailed lawyers, agents, flaring tempers, shouting and lots of aggravation. And at this point, UA agreed to give Sean Connery a bonus. He would get $100,000 along with his $54,000 salary. So the film went, uh, From Russia With Love went into production in 1963. We will cover the film From Russia With Love in detail when we get to the letter F. So don't worry about that. We will talk about that more then. So it wrapped in August, was released in October. Stanley Sopel, who was the associate producer on the film, said the crew did grow to love Sean Connery because of his professionalism and his concern for their problems. So this is where Connery, he's really stepping up into being like, you know, the leading figure on set. He'd be on set before his call time. He'd there, he'd talk to the crew. He'd learn about what they did, what their equipment was, what the, what their issues were. But that film, actually, I wasn't aware of this, but actually was beset with quite a lot of issues. You know, firstly, from the script, uh, which went through a lot of work. Um, obviously on a tight schedule and then obviously we talked about this uh, in one of our very first episodes but Pedro Armendariz falling ill he had cancer and they had to wrap up his role quickly he played Kerim Bay Kerim Bay that's it and then you know he wrapped up his role and then killed himself and this is while the production was still going on and Connie actually credits Young with having the strength of character to pull everything together because I think everyone just fell apart after he killed himself also during filming Terence Young's helicopter crashed into a lock Daniela Bianchi was injured in a car crash and actually Connery had to pull her from the wreckage of the car and then Connery himself nearly got very injured while shooting the helicopter chase at the end of the film the helicopter just came too close for him Connery said we found out a bit too late to do anything about it that the pilot was not very well trained 
But Connery says From Russia With Love is his favourite Bond film. And we've talked about this before. It's one of our favourites as well. It's an absolute stone cold yeah. classic. Not just a classic Bond film, but a classic film. And it's an actor's film as yeah. well. He's, he's He gets to really act well in that film. Yeah. He said, I like the story very much. It has more credibility than Goldfinger or Thunderball, which were quite fantastic. As the films got bigger and more expensive, they became more involved with hardware than people, which is a fair assessment, I think we can all agree mm-hmm. with. So this film really cemented his position as James Bond and as a superstar. And Terence Young tells this story about them going to America, him and Sean, and they were being, they got approached, uh, like there was crowds gathered for him and a lady rushed up to Sean Connery, got him to sign a photo and she got annoyed with him that he'd signed it as Sean Connery. She said, I wanted James Bond to sign it. And that is just symptomatic of his whole experience from this point onwards. People just Mm. forgot he was treated as James Bond they forgot that he was there was a real actor underneath and because he'd come from relative un, as a relative unknown it was very hard for the public and for people in the press to distinguish between the two and i think this is where connery's deep dissatisfaction with being james bond really stemmed is that people would talk about him as bond he would be asked questions as james bond headlines would be yeah. james bond you know in trouble with his wife and all this sort of stuff and it's a dreadful business for him it's for, for this young lad from edinburgh to be catapulted into this attention and then really just being ignored as a person people not really uh, he really became a very private person at this point that's that's the point he shut yeah. up his private well, it's, life it's, it's definitely symptomatic of we, we see that across a lot of the bond actors who they i mean connery's he started from nothing and he's kind of he wants that respect he, he's done a lot of work to get to that point and if he's not getting it from you know the people that are watching these films it's quite difficult whereas roger he wanted to be called bond everywhere he loved it didn't yeah, he yeah he went no issues at yeah all. was not not afraid of that was he yeah, and then and, and and but you see it with the ones, Craig. I think that's a similar thing with Craig. Craig, I don't, these actors that struggle a bit with being just Bond, and they it's not the actor that's playing the role; it's just the the, the Bond character. Well, it's what do you go but, into um, acting for, isn't it? It's kind of hard. Like obviously, being you want the fame and the fortune, but you want to be working yeah. as well. It's just like any job. It's like you want to be able to do the work and be challenged in your work and be respected yeah. for your work. And yeah, the fame and fortune yeah. is is a is a byproduct of it, I guess. But I suppose if, if you look at the Connery roles, it's probably like any job. We know you get you have a job, and you you realise that if you don't put as much effort in, it doesn't matter. People still love Bond. That you probably lose interest in it, and you don't get that with lots of other films, which is you know where he's where he's trying out films that are a little bit more interesting and a little bit harder, like Marnie and and uh, Woman of Straw. Yeah, these these two. Uh, made in 1964, probably much due to the fact that you know he wants to distance himself pretty swiftly away from just being Bond. So, Woman of Straw is about a guy called Anthony Richmond. He schemes to get the fortune of his uncle by persuading a nurse to marry his uncle. After his uncle then dies, the nurse becomes a murder suspect, and the nurse is played by uh, an actor called Gina Lola Brigida, who reportedly was. Quite difficult, demanding, temperamental during the the, the filming and, and clashed with the other two leads. I've not seen that. Have you two seen that one? No. 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 But Marnie, 1964, I have seen this. I watched this the other day for the first time. I'm guessing you two have seen it as well. It's oh, yes. By, directed yeah. by Hitchcock. So with Connery being under contract with Eon for both Bond and non-Bond projects, so he was turning down every non-Bond that Eon were offering just wasn't interested so finally they they 
say, well, what do you want to do? And he said, I really want to work with Alfred Hitchcock, which at the time... Obviously. Is, yeah, it's is probably what all actors want to be doing at that yeah. time. So Eon arranged this and, and made sure it happened. But Connery shocked a lot of people at the time because he actually asked to see a script, which now we think about that, we go, of course, yeah, actors see scripts before they take projects on. At the time, that didn't happen. Even Cary Grant would just go, yeah, I'm doing the film, and then would see the script before, you know, after the contract's been signed. So this was, yeah, unprecedented. And when told by Hitchcock's agent, they said, even Cary Grant doesn't see these scripts. And Connery just replied, I'm not Cary Grant, which is, you know, classic. Con- Connery's not taking any, any crap, is he? Never does, does he? No, it's just that, like, yeah, I'm not him. Hitchcock and Connery did get on well during during filming, though. So, you know, this that didn't, didn't progress into any sort of bad blood. And uh, he... He played opposite Tippi Hedren in this. So, if yeah. you're not aware of the plot, Marnie uh, is the is the the name of the character played by Tippi Hedren, who psychologically disturbed. And Connery plays a character called Mark, who marries her. They fall in love, and he's he kind of trying to sort of sort out why she is like she is, get to the, the bottom of it. Really, I, I really enjoyed the film. I thought it was a really interesting performance from Connery. It is um, interesting. I I'm um, I, I used to be completely obsessed with Hitchcock. So Marnie, I've seen Marnie a few times. It's um, yeah. it's a little bit like it. It didn't very do very well at the box office, Marnie, in mm-hmm. comparison to a lot of Hitchcock things, which is probably quite annoying for Connery because Hitchcock films were largely a you know done yeah. deal. If you got a Hitchcock film, it's going to do well. Marnie didn't do that well in comparison to, to to most of his other films. But it's it's what I don't like about it is it's a bit of a carbon copy of other Hitchcock films. It's not as interesting it's almost like takes elements from earlier films and i think sean connery struggles from that because he feels a little bit like a carbon copy of other hitchcock characters in it and doesn't really own the role very well he's almost like he's playing a bit of a Cary grant from an early one and it just doesn't seem to work that well for him and i and i think the fact that he's already bond doesn't help that either he's people just see him they go he's he's bond he can't play this other role i guess it's not far away enough from bond yeah or you can't. I, I think there is an issue where the roles you pick whilst you're playing Bond are very difficult. You, yeah, you really have to get a very specific one. Like, I think Craig did it well with Knives Out. I think he picked a role that was just far enough away, but without being too jarring. Like, he didn't play like some completely different weird. He didn't play a drug dealer or something like that. He played a s- similar character. But with this, I just don't feel he was that exciting in the role. He didn't really own it to the point where... And with the Hitchcock film, it's such a big thing. It's like... I think from what you remember, that it's written for a much older actor as well. And so he is slightly yeah. miscast. And that's not really his fault. But um, mm. but yeah, yeah, I think that comes... It was written for Cary Grant and Grace Kerry- right. Kelly, apparently. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which, which, it, which it would have been better in. That, that would have been... Knowing that film, that would that would be perfect for him. Yeah, but interesting that he got on so well with Hitchcock. I think Hitchcock um, had a reputation for being quite difficult to work with. But um, I think they that their sort of sensibilities. Mm. He, I think Hitchcock gave him the space to do what he he needed to do. Yeah, what well, no nonsense. I think one said no, something to the other one. Yeah, exactly. The other one went right. I know exactly what you want. It's I want clear, you to do isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So um, Tibby Hedrin, uh, her character is a man hating character and doesn't like embracing Connery's character. So much so that um, she said, the man was absolutely gorgeous. I asked Hitchcock how I could play a character who wasn't attracted to one of the sexiest men alive. 
And Hitchcock responded, it's called acting, my dear. Which, um, <laughs> I think he said that to a lot of people. It's <laughs> a great response. But yeah, I mean, that's it's worth checking out if you haven't seen it. I do, I do recommend it. Um, yeah, no, it's worth it's worth seeing. I definitely, I think if you haven't seen any Hitchcock films, watch some other ones first. Mm. Watch watch Psycho, watch The Birds and all those first, and oh, especially if you want to see Tippi Hedren at her best as well. But no, Marnie is good. It's just yeah, it's just a little bit watered down for me. This isn't a Hitchcock podcast though. I'll stop talking about it. This always happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and then we move back on to Bond, and I'm quite excited about this one because this is, as you more than aware, my favourite Bond film by I can't trying to think of a golfing reference. By a, by a good few yards, uh, Goldfinger, nineteen sixty four, and at this point he's already Connery's already been discussing with Broccoli and Saltzman. There's money. It's still going on. Every film, there's more discussions about money. And by this point, Bond is getting big. Goldeneye, uh, Goldeneye, Goldfinger <laughs> was it was it was getting to the the, the high levels now of being like a, a global sensation. And uh, Connery started playing hard to get. He was I mean he was in a he was in a contract with. Eon to to do a series of the films, but he was still like in negotiations, saying, "I'm not going to do another one. I don't want to do it." Um, so Broccoli had to fly out to Hollywood to try and smooth things over with him. Saltzman didn't go because at this point, apparently, they Connery and Saltzman weren't getting on anyway. They were never really getting on, apparently. But at this point, he just he didn't even fly out. Connery was threatening to quit unless he was given a bigger say in the action, and he t- he told Barry Norman in an interview. I don't want to go into details, but it concerns my artistic control of the picture. If we cannot come to terms, I don't know that I'll do the film, which is interesting. I won't go into so much depth about the plot of Goldfinger. I think we all know how it, how it works. Um, we'll do an episode but it's a, on it. It's a big, we'll do an episode on it soon, yeah, so I won't go into depth. But I think one important thing to say about it is Goldfinger massively changes the Bond series in that it, it adds in a lot of new elements. It adds in te- loads of technology, gadgets, pre-credit sequences really long pre-credit sequences multiple foreign places to go to it's there's lo- it's it's the it's the basis for the a lot of the bond films that came come after it it's it's almost like the first real perfected bond film and they use that as the archetypal bond film for going forward it was also the first bond film to win an oscar which is interesting for best sound editing so you can see here that it's getting big now it's really getting big people are noticing it and obviously that's having a big effect on connery his salary rose uh, there was a pay dispute, which was later solved. And interestingly, it's because he suffered a back injury when filming the scene with Oddjob, where um, he's uh, he knocks Bond unconscious in Miami. And the dispute was settled, and Ian and Connery agreed to deal with um, a deal where the actor would receive 5% of the gross of each Bond film he starred in. Pretty big move for an actor who was really just hired as a cheap alternative at the start now he's getting percentage profits of these films and if you think about it the series isn't that far in it's pretty early on still and he's mm. it's really starting to make a difference maybaum um was brought in to fix the novel's criticized plot hole where goldfinger actually attempts to empty fort knox where we i think there's a reference in the film where it would actually take like 12 days to take all of the gold out of fort knox so Harry Saltzman didn't like the draft. They brought in a guy called Paul Den to revise it. Uh, Connery disliked this draft, so he got Maybound to return. So you can see that Connery's got a lot of big stake in this film. He can actually say, I don't want that writer. I want this one in. Couldn't have done that on Doctor No. He started mm. to become quite important in this. A couple of interesting facts to finish off my bit here. The Peter Alice, do you know who he is? Famous old golfer. He actually taught Bond, uh, Connery how to play golf for the Stoke Park golf club scenes in Buckinghamshire. 
and you can kind of see that that's one of my favorite scenes and i think we've said it in previous have, yeah. podcasts where it's such a good scene but he's trained with one of the best golfers in the world at the time to to do that scene perfectly and jack nicklaus said he loved the game of golf sean was pretty darn good golfer and we played together several times golf method acting yeah he's getting involved figures very yeah, heavily he, in his later life doesn't it yeah, yeah because he, um, he hadn't actually played golf before that point had he no and, he, and yeah he absolutely loved it later on mm. Reviews of so I look at some reviews of Goldfinger that specifically that talked about the Connery in them. The Guardian said that Goldfinger was two hours of unmissable fantasy, uh, and they said that the film was the most exciting, the most extravagant of the Bond films. Garbage from the gods. I've never heard of that phrase before, but I quite <laughs> liked it. Adding that Connery was better than ever as Bond. The uh, Illustrated London News thought Goldfinger even tenser, louder, wittier, more ingenious, and more impossible than From Russia of Love. A brilliant Farago, adding that Connery is ineffable. Uh, New York Times is less enthusiastic about the film, saying it was tediously apparent that Bond was becoming increasingly reliant on gadgets with less emphasis on the lush temptations of voluptuous females. Although he did admit that Connery plays the hero with an insultingly cool commanding air. He's coming off pretty well in this film from these, these reviewers, and it's justified, isn't it? He is fantastic in that film. Mm-hmm. And it's it's... For many, it's the pinnacle of his career. I, and I certainly for me, it's just the best thing he's done. He's just fantastic in it. Yeah, I mean, he, he does go on to have a really great career outside of Bond. But yeah, I mean, those first three Bond films, I think, are superb and, and really a, a good showcase for his his talents and really set him up as for the rest of his life, right? Yeah, That yeah. will always be considered. I think if you, if you tied it back to... If you went back... And I know, I know he's done lots of good films, especially in the 90s and and stuff but if you if if you were to go what made bond's career i think goldfinger did if he hadn't got the opportunity to do goldfinger and he stopped it from mushroom of love and he'd done something he'd moved on fast then it just you wouldn't have hit that peak well, i guess we'll explore the rest of his career in the next episode which will cover thunderball you only live twice diamonds are forever never say never again league of gentlemen uh league of extraordinary gentlemen yeah his oscar win <laughs> couldn't even get the name right <laughs> Uh, and then right up to his uh, sad demise last year in, in 2020. But um, yeah, I guess the, just one th- funny quote I wanted to just share before that we wrap up, which was in an interview with Johnny Carson. And Johnny Carson uh, is, is doing a James Bond quiz with Sean Connery from a local newspaper. And it's around the time of Never Say Never Again. And the question is, who is the first ever James Bond villain? And Sean Connery deadpan says, Cubby Broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then he says afterwards oh you know i'm joking but uh you can see there that there is animosity there and that's something that we'll really explore in the next episode in great detail so if people want to get in touch with us come at us on the socials twitter instagram and facebook at james bond a to z come at us on the socials <laughs> have you been hanging out with and if they oh, want cool now if they want to come at us on the emails weekly <laughs> Well, I'd rather they didn't. Um, if you want to email us like a normal human, podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Yeah, James Bond uh, will return. The James Bond A to Z podcast releases every week, every fr- Thursday night, Friday morning. So, yeah, find us on your local podcast service and leave us a review where you listen. Very Please, very much. That would be really helpful. Uh, tell your friends, tell your enemies, and we will speak to you next time with more Sean Connery. Thanks a lot. Ciao. James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley. 
with music by Tom Ingomels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.